The views, information, or opinions expressed during AOA broadcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Allergic Allergy, its employees, or members. The AOA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in and assumes no liability for any activities in connection with this broadcast. The primary purpose of this broadcast series is to educate and inform and does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Advertising which is incorporated into, placed and associated with, or targeted toward the content of this product without express approval and acknowledgement of the AOA is forbidden. These broadcasts are available for private, non-commercial use only and may not be edited or modified from their original form or reproduced for distribution. Hello, and thanks for coming back to listen to another podcast episode all about allergy. I'm Jennifer Vilwak. I'm an otolaryngologist and allergist at the University of Kansas, and I'm joined by Dr. Alpin Patel, who is currently the president of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. So welcome, Dr. Patel. Thank you, Jennifer. Anything else that you want to tell us about your background or your credentials before we dive right in? Sure. So I started my career in academic medicine at George Washington University in Emory where I had the opportunity to internalize the allergy care. So I had an opportunity to build centers of excellence in allergy and sinus, and I'm very excited about bringing that to private practice. I was at a multi-specialty group for over 10 years and will soon be transitioning into private practice where I hope to continue my uh, allergy diagnoses, treatment, and care. All right, awesome. And so I think sometimes there can be some confusion, not just about what otolaryngology means, because it's kind of a tongue twister and there's lots of vowels and consonants in the word itself, but then when you add allergy into it, sometimes people just don't know what the scope of practice for an otolaryngic allergist is. So how would you describe that to someone that's just unfamiliar with what we do? Absolutely. So it's a good question. So otolaryngologists obviously are ear, nose, and throat doctors, also known as head and neck surgeons. So oftentimes the, the layperson or the patient may not recognize that we're surgeons unless they see the head and neck surgery either on your white coat or on a sign either in your office or outside of your office. But when you take it one step further and you have an otolaryngic allergist and maybe a member of the AAOA, not only do you have the person who's been obviously board eligible and hopefully board certified for otolaryngology head and neck surgery, but also can take it one step further and understands and appreciates allergy, whether it's inhalant allergy or ingested food allergens. And so it just completes the picture when we're evaluating patients who have ENT complaints. And so oftentimes we'll see, you know, allergy and asthma associates, you know, or or similar practices, and they're trained a little bit differently from us, not just in the fact that they're non-surgeons, but some of the methods and techniques are a little bit different. Can you briefly describe the ways that otolaryngic allergy may be different from the way that some other allergists practice, and if there's any ramifications to that? Absolutely. So as otolaryngic allergists, Um, We obviously learn about what the general allergists do, whether it's inhalant allergy evaluation and treatment or ingested food allergy evaluation and treatment. But we also are almost forced to at least be aware and acknowledge uh, rashes, urticaria, hives, asthma, which oftentimes accompanies atopic patients. And I think the biggest difference is we oftentimes don't get that training and experience in our residency programs or fellowships, and we have to go to the AAOA for those resources and to be comfortable 
with the knowledge and treatment for some of those disease states. I think the general allergists obviously get a lot of that during their fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, they're probably a lot more comfortable with allergy and especially immunology and immunodeficiency workups and urticaria and hives and rashes and angioedema and asthma. Um, so I think those are some big differences, but there's no reason why an otolaryngic allergist can't do just as good of a job, if not better, than our general allergy colleagues. Um, I think the general allergy community overall has been a little bit slow to adopt SLIT or sublingual immunotherapy for inhalants over the last decade or two, but I also see that pendulum swinging within their uh, organizations and sister societies. And then as you mentioned, we're obviously surgeons, so we also evaluate for uh, non-physiologic contributing factors like structural problems, inflammatory and infectious diseases, and we obviously have scopes that we're a lot more comfortable with than most of the general allergists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that a lot of patients appreciate having a one-stop shop as well. So it's not that you, you know, go to your allergist, then you go to your ENT, then maybe now you need another surgeon. A lot of us are very well situated to provide all of those services at once without having to worry about transferring records and, and all of those other things. So when we think about the patients that we treat, what are your favorite conditions to treat? So being a, an AAOA member, of course, and being an otolaryngic allergist, um, I do appreciate the nose, and I appreciate all the nasal symptoms that patients come to our office complaining of, including nasal obstruction, nasal congestion, watery itchy eyes, runny nose, you know, things that go along with what we see as AAOA members and otolaryngic allergists. So I like to try to help that patient population. And sometimes it's individualized, obviously, because there's different factors involved that are causing their symptoms. Sometimes, as I mentioned, it's structural, right? And maybe a surgical option may be considered. Sometimes it's a tumor, maybe not malignant, but something that needs to be removed. Um, sometimes it's just chronic sinusitis with or without polyps. And sometimes there's an allergy component. So trying to figure out why the patient is in your office in exam room um, is, you know, it takes some detective work. It, you have to ask the right questions in a timely manner because we don't have all day to spend with the patients and then come up with a game plan and the patient buying in so that the patient can get better either with or without surgery or with or without allergy evaluation and treatment. I like treating those patients. And I think for a lot of us, especially those that practice otolaryngic allergy, so much of it is in the patient quality of life as well. And really being able to do things that seem relatively routine and simple for us because we see them all day, but it really has big impacts on the patient. Like I recall a patient recently coming for a follow-up visit and she told me, I've been waiting for weeks to come back and see you as soon as I walked in the room. And I was like, oh no, because I'm assuming that there was some problem. She's like, no, my post-nasal drip is finally gone after so many years. And so when you think about how allergy fits in with your overall practice as a surgeon, you know, sometimes I hear concerns that, oh, it's gonna detract from my surgical volume, or I'm just gonna start seeing all these itchy patients with runny noses, and it's going to take away from the surgical aspect of my practice or my referral base even. Um, how would you answer those concerns or recommend structuring, you know, how you evaluate your patients or kind of intentionally build your referral base? Absolutely. So you can make your practice however you want, but part of that is marketing and, and branding and, and talking to your referring doctors and even the patients that you see, because sometimes that's your best source of marketing. 
So when I was at Emory, there weren't any other general allergists at five different hospitals. So I saw a lot of urticaria and angioedema, and those aren't my favorite things to evaluate and treat, but it comes with the territory when you advertise yourself as an ENT or otolaryngic allergist. Um, so you can do that, and a lot of people oftentimes late in their career when they've given up surgery decide to do that, and they're very gratified and gratifying experiences for them and for the patients that obviously are seeking treatment. Um, but you can also do less if you want. If you're not interested in food allergy, you can focus on inhalant allergy. Um, I think the important piece is recognizing and being aware and acknowledging the role of allergy. And you don't necessarily have to diagnose and treat, but at least if you're aware of the factors, I think your surgical outcomes and your non-surgical outcomes are going to lead to happier patients. And at the end of the day, we're all physicians because we just want our patients to get better. And we're going to use all the different tools in our toolkit to do that. And one of them may be allergy diagnosis and treatment. And so, Dr. Patel, you mentioned that urticaria is not your favorite condition. But what are some of the most challenging cases or conditions that you treat? So I think of two or three sets of patients that I see on a weekly basis that are Sometimes difficult um, for the patient and for the provider because you don't come up with answers or a good, you know, treatment outcome. And so I think the first set are patients who seem to have allergy based on history and exam, but then when you test them, even if it's both with in vitro and in vivo testing or skin testing, they're negative. And sometimes they'll respond to medical treatment or avoidance therapy, but obviously you can't start immunotherapy because you haven't identified the allergen or allergens that are contributing to their symptoms. So when they don't respond to those first and second tiers of avoidance and, and medical therapy, uh, it's frustrating uh, because then you're relegated to really procedures that you can do either in the office or in the operating room to try to help their symptoms, and they don't always work. So I think that's a difficult patient population. The other one that I also have some challenges with is the nasal polyp patients. Um, even if you feel so good about doing a nasal polypectomy and maybe a full house fest with image guidance, maybe even balloons in a hybrid situation, and you're throwing singular at the patient and you've acknowledged and worked up the allergy component, whether it's inhalant or food, and, and you're maybe starting the patient on immunotherapy and um, and obviously, uh, the biologics may change this as far as the outcomes, but some of these patients come back months later with recurrence, and it's frustrating because you've used drug-eluting stents, you've done everything that you've learned about and you know and you're up to date, and now uh, they're back with the same problem that they had before. So it's frustrating sometimes for those patients and as a, as a physician-surgeon dealing with um, those outcomes when they're just short-lived. But again, as I mentioned, those biologics may be a game changer in those patients. So looking forward to see where, where that takes us. Do you have any standard phrases or standard counseling when you suspect that this might be one of those difficult situations that help inform patient expectations and also let them know that you're not giving up on them if certain things don't work, but that it might be more of a, a drawn-out process than the quick fix that most people are hoping for? Right, so I do tell them that they've been suffering for a long time, and sometimes the diagnosis and treatment's not gonna happen overnight, right? Sometimes it takes time, you have to try different things, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. So for the non-allergic patients, that first subset that I mentioned, um, 
you know, I tell them that the test is not 100%, right? Not every test is. And so they may still have allergies, even though we've classified them traditionally as non-allergic rhinitis or NAR. But we can't start immunotherapy, obviously, whether it's sublingual or subcutaneous, uh, because we don't have anything to confirm that with the skin or the blood testing. And then for the second subset of patients, those polyp patients that sometimes recur despite throwing everything at them, including the kitchen sink, those patients I always tell, and you don't know who those patients are going to be, but all my polyp patients that I take back to the OR, I always tell them that these are benign and they always come back. And it may be a year, it may be a few months, it may be five years, it may be 10 years, but what we're going to try to do is improve their quality of life as long as we can. And then my last question, you know, we've talked a lot about different disease pathologies, and I think you've alluded to what your answer to my question is going to be. But what are you most excited for when you look to the future of otolaryngic allergy, whether it's new testing modalities or new treatments that you think is really going to change the game for patients, but also the way that we practice otolaryngic allergy? I think uh, I see a couple new modalities uh, coming out in the near future and, and one that's already out that might make a big difference in how we treat our otolaryngic allergy patients. And one is uh, with the likely and impending approval by the FDA of some food immunotherapy in the sense of oral immunotherapy capsules as well as the um, epicutaneous immunotherapy, that may change the way we obviously treat children with uh, severe peanut allergy. And so I think we've done a great job as an academy to educate and inform our members of the importance of food allergy, even if you don't test or treat for it, because it's a hot topic out there in the press and the public, and uh, everyone's blaming everything either on lack of sleep or food allergy. And that's not always the case. I think the second game changer, uh, as I mentioned earlier, are the biologics. What role are they going to play in our patients who have allergy and, and sinus and polyps and, and even things like eosinophilic esophagitis and food allergy? Um, obviously, the therapy is expensive and uh, can be a long-term um, treatment as far as duration goes. But hopefully those things work themselves out, especially with new competition, new products that come onto the market for those indications. So I'm excited to see where the future goes uh, with some of those new modalities. All right. Well, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for your time today and giving us a broad overview of otolaryngic allergy and what we have to offer and also what you're looking forward to in the future of our practice. Thank you, Jennifer, and it was a pleasure talking to you.